Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Devinney. I'm the lead pastor here at Asbury. This is our first podcast of the allergy season. So if uh, you hear lots of sniffles or coughing or throat clearing, uh, that's just me suffering from the pollen. We're going to dive in. We are... As I'm recording this on, on, on a Wednesday, we are like two days, no, actually, I'm sorry, kind of, it's, tomorrow is the last day of our 90-day uh, gospel reading plan. So tomorrow we will read the very last chapter in the Gospel of John, and then on Friday we'll begin the next reading plan, which is nine days in the Gospel of Mark. And if you're if you're using, um, th- these reading plans, by the way, are... are they're available on the Bible Project website uh, under their Bible Reading Plans tab, and they're also all on the Version app. And so this next reading plan is titled The Crucified King. Uh, and so it's just nine days in the Gospel of Mark. Now, I know you've already read the Gospel of Mark uh, a couple months ago, but uh, I just would, you know, one, reading through it quickly in nine days is a very different experience from reading it a chapter a day over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, You get a different feel for it. You pick up on different things. Some of the larger themes in the book become a bit easier to spot. Um, So highly recommend. So yeah, and we're doing this because of course we want to, we want to go back as we come up to Easter and Holy Week and re-examine the whole story of the gospel um, and Mark is perfect for it because Mark is so short and, and it's so fast-paced. It really helps you kind of get this, this wonderful, large overview of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, so that'll be what we do for nine days beginning this Friday, which means that the podcast next week is going to be um, really focused in on Holy Week and on Mark's presentation of um, the last days of Jesus' life. And so today I'm going to focus just on sort of the end of John's gospel. Um, I, John's story of the, the passion and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is, is probably actually my favorite treatment of it in the gospels. Um, they all present the story a little differently. And... Um, and it's always a moving story in, in all four of the Gospels. Um, we'll see on Easter Sunday, of course, how Mark's story of the resurrection is really different and kind of challenging in a lot of ways. Um, John's story, to me, for me, as I read it, is, is like the most highly emotional of the four. Um, and I think also John's John's telling of the the whole cycle of events moving from the arrest to the trial to the the crucifixion to the resurrection I, I just it's to me at least it's not it's maybe not as detailed in some places as like Luke or Matthew um, it's not as challenging as Mark but I think it's one of the most deeply beautiful portrayals so we're gonna kind of go over these last three to four chapters of John in this podcast now um, here in chapter 18, you have the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. So um, 
It's, it's after the Last Supper, when Jesus has all these wonderful prayers and things to teach the disciples. And, and John really goes into, I think, a lot more detail on what Jesus was saying to the disciples on the last night together than anyone else. Um, and there's a lot of great stuff in there. Um, some of the most, uh, I think, some of the most beautiful and encouraging statements in all of the Gospels happen in John 14 through 18, as Jesus is giving final instructions and encouragement to his disciples, right? This is uh, where he tells them, you know, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. And and that's a hugely encouraging verse. Um, so, but, but here in 18, this is the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. He's gone out. Um, he's left Jerusalem, where, where they celebrated the Passover, he's crossed um, the Kidron Valley, which just runs right next to Jerusalem. He's now up on the other side of the valley in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and, and Judas brings this band of soldiers and officers to come and arrest him. And they come, and it's, it's kind of like this mob with torches and lanterns and weapons. Um, it's overkill, really, to arrest Jesus. Um, but we say that in hindsight with the benefit of really knowing truly who Jesus is. Um, these people thought Jesus was um, like every other person who claimed to be the Messiah. They thought he was probably going to be organizing a rebellion. They assume he's got armed followers, that he's ready for violence. Um, which turns out, because of Peter, to be kind of true. Um, so they come and they bring him... and. and what I love about this story, one of the most powerful moments, I think, um, is, is this in 18 verse 4 and onward. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I love this little detail. It's not present in any of the other four Gospels. And it makes you wonder why. Not why isn't it present in the other four Gospels, but, but, but why, why did that simple statement that Jesus made, why did they draw back and fall to the ground? Imagine, I guess, imagine what Jesus' voice must have sounded like in that moment. Imagine what his presence must have felt like to inspire that kind of reaction. These are... uh, Prison guards, they're soldiers. These are these are strong, tough, hardened men. They're not easily intimidated. They are, in fact, the ones who typically do the intimidating. must have been something 
in the, the, the power of his voice, the power of his presence that just overwhelmed them in that moment. So then Jesus, again, asks them who they're seeking. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And then Peter, over-enthusiastic as always, draws a sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. <laughs> um, Peter, what are we going to do with you, man? Jesus you know, rebukes him, put your sword into its sheath, right? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? John, other Gospels will record that Jesus heals the servant's ear. John doesn't mention it. Uh, he does mention that the servant's name is Malchus. Um, there's also this, this interesting mention in verse 14 that Caiaphas, the high priest, had advised here it just says the Jews. Uh, other other gospels specify um, the the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders. Um, that Caiaphas advises them that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, in his mind, of course, what's happening is um, he considers this one man, Jesus, to be. A threat because well, I mean, there's obviously the the threat to his own power, but um, but the Sadducees, which would include the high priests, were the the party that favored Roman appeasement. They wanted to work with the Romans. They wanted to make sure the Romans that that that, that, that everything was kind of kept status quo, so that the Romans would not feel the need to um, send soldiers in and 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 really crack down on the Jewish people. Because you see, at this point in time, um, the Roman emperors have been pretty content to allow the Jews to practice their own religion however they see fit, um, to basically let them live their lives. Um, and it's the Pharisees who very often are stirring up a lot of trouble with that. Um, it's the Pharisees who are really outraged at the Roman oppression. Uh, and there is oppression going on. There's economic oppression. There's just not really religious oppression. Um, So, uh, so Caiaphas is wanting to make sure that things don't get out of hand. He doesn't want the Romans to feel the need to uh, intervene in Jewish affairs. And so he says, look, this guy is going to stir up the people. He's whipping up the crowds. We want, to, we want to keep the peace. And the best way to keep the peace is to kill this guy so that, so that there's no chance of an armed rebellion against Rome, we'll show the Romans that we can take care of these things ourselves, they'll stay out of our hair. So he says it's expedient that one man should die rather than that we should allow him to stir up more trouble, which might then lead to even more deaths. The great irony, and this is why John phrases it this specific way, right, that it's expedient that one man should die for the people. The great irony is that in, that in that sense that it would be expedient that one man should die for all the people. He's correct, because that's, of course, what Jesus is going to do. That is Jesus' explicit purpose. He's going to die for all the people. 
uh, Caiaphas just doesn't understand the actual purpose or the, or the actual reasoning behind it. Now then, you have the, the, this little vignette of, in verse 15, uh, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Denies Jesus once. Then the high priest begins questioning Jesus, and a few a, a bit later, um, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Um... You might think this guy who watched his relative's ear get cut off by Peter would probably actually know exactly who Peter is. Um, Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. So now Peter's denied Jesus three times. Now, Peter gets uh, a lot of uh, negative attention for this, right? He gets bad press. Um, but there is something at play here that we tend to overlook. The, uh, the high priests need witnesses who can testify about who Jesus has said he is and what he's been doing. Specifically, they need two or more. Now, they've got one. The other disciple went in with him. Other Gospels... Um, and John does not mention this, but other Gospels are at great pains to, to explain that there were many false witnesses whose testimony was obviously not true. Because it didn't, they didn't agree with each other. In all likelihood, the priest is sending out his servant girl to try and find the other disciples of Jesus. They're asking Peter if he's one of Jesus' disciples because they need another witness. Peter is denying Jesus because he doesn't want to testify against him or testify about him in this trial. He doesn't want to contribute to Jesus' arrest and execution. Now, I don't think Jesus would have cared all that much if he did, because, of course, Peter's testimony would have been true, and Jesus' purpose is, in fact, to die. And the blame would all have fallen squarely on the high priest and not on Peter. Nonetheless, this is what Peter does. And clearly, he's going to be racked by guilt later on. So then, Jesus is taken before Pilate. Now the reason why they have to take him before Pilate, and by the way, this whole trial so far, um, before the high priest, that it's totally illegal. 
not just under Roman law, it's illegal under Jewish law. For one thing, they couldn't find two witnesses. For another thing, the way that they convened the trial in the middle of the night was was entirely against the law. They, they are really violating the laws of the Old Testament here in a massive, massive way. Um, but they bring him before Pilate because the Jewish people are not allowed to condemn people to death. If they want the death penalty, they've got to get the Roman government to hand that sentence out. So, they take him to Pilate. And Pilate's interrogation is kind of weird, right? Um, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So they, now they're getting into this like oddly philosophical debate. Um, <clears throat> but it's really clear Pilate doesn't see any reason to kill him. So he offers, he offers to release Jesus, right? He, he says he is accustomed to release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Or, or, and your Bible, if you're reading along, this is in chapter 18, verse 40, your Bible quite likely has a little uh, footnote about that translation of the word robber. That means he might also have been an insurrectionist, uh, meaning he had been leading a rebellion against Rome. I think that's likely. So, Jesus, the Messiah who they are angry at because he's not leading them in rebellion against Rome, is going to be substituted for someone who has already tried to lead a rebellion against Rome. They are choosing violence. They are choosing violent rebellion over the love of God. So then Pilate takes Jesus and flogs him. And if you're wondering why, um, it could just be because he was kind of a cruel guy. I mean, it's well documented that Pilate was not a very nice person. But um, I, I kind of think he was trying to maybe appease the crowd a little bit and say, look, I flogged him. We don't need to kill him. We've punished him. Um, we've humiliated him. We've, we've done all this. Because then he says, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. But when he brings Jesus out and presents him to the crowd, the crowd demands that they crucify him. In other Gospels, when Pilate is 
trying to get the crowd to back down and they demand his crucifixion, he says, why? What evil has he done? Even, even this Roman governor is totally perplexed at, at the, the bloodlust of the crowd here. So Pilate keeps trying to release him, but it becomes really clear if he releases him, there's going to be a bigger problem on his hands because the crowd is probably going to riot. Um, and then they make a political threat to him, right? The, the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend, for everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In other words, if you let him go, we're going to tell your boss that you've let, a, a, that you've let someone live who is claiming to challenge Caesar for his throne. It's like an accusation of, hey, you're going to be guilty of treason if you let this guy go. So Jesus is crucified. He dies. He's buried. And now we come to the, the resurrection story. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And just as a side note, I love that John, in his own gospel, keeps referring to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. It's just great. Um, and she said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So then Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. This is my favorite part. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's, I love that John takes a minute to just be like, yeah, by the way, I beat Peter to the tomb. I ran faster. I, <laughs> like, I'm way better because I got there first. Go, John. Um, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, just as a reminder that John reached the tomb before anyone else, also went in, and he saw and believed. I love this passage, one, because it just feels like John is just trying to remind everyone that he was there first. Um, great. Um, but I also love the sense of urgency that they all have. And what happens next is that Mary stands outside the tomb weeping, and and she Jesus appears to her, and she doesn't recognize him at first, right? She thinks he's the gardener. Until he calls her name. Until he calls her name. And the minute he calls her by name, she realizes who this is. And I love that moment. I love that that it's when Jesus calls her by name that she recognizes him. Just the beauty of, of what that says about the depth of their personal relationship. That she's so overcome with grief that of course she doesn't recognize him at first because who would recognize him? I mean, who, who would be sitting there expecting this man who they just watched die standing right in front of them? It makes total sense that she doesn't recognize him at first. 
when he calls her name, she gets it. Then you have this moment in chapter 21 when Jesus appears to the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and I've been, I mean, we, I, I, in January, I was at the spot where he did this. Uh, really, really cool. Uh, he appears to them, they have breakfast. And then he and Peter have this truly wonderful moment. I'm going to read it to you. It's in John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So one, for each time that Peter denied Jesus, he's given a chance to affirm his love for Jesus. But what doesn't come across in the English is that each time Jesus, when he asked John, if, when he asked Peter if he loves him, he uses the word agape, the, the highest form of love. It's self-giving love, self-sacrificial love, the kind of love um, which God has for all his children and all of creation, the kind of love that motivates one to go to the cross. Peter responds the first two times with different words for love. He uses the lower form of love. It's like brotherly love. The third time is when he finally gets what Jesus is trying to get him to do. The first two times he responds with the love that's like brotherly, affectionate, fond, but not self-sacrificing. The third time Peter responds with agape. And then there's the warning about how Peter will one day die. I think all of us will probably have moments where, for one reason or another, we may... If not deny Jesus outright, we may distance ourselves from it. Maybe we'll think we have a good reason, just like Peter thought he had a good reason. 
But in all cases, Jesus will give us the opportunity to make up for it. But I want to, we should stress that he, he wants, he wants us to have that agape love for him. The same kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing love he has for us is the kind of love that, you know, we, we will very often say that, <clears throat> yes, we, we are supposed to have that kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing love for others, which is true. Absolutely, right? We, we are meant to be a people who are defined by our willingness to sacrifice for others. But what we often kind of skip over is that we're supposed to have that kind of love for God. That we are meant to be willing to be uh, sacrificial towards God. That our love for God ought to be self-sacrificing, self-giving. That's a theme all throughout the Gospels, right? Take up your cross and follow me. You must die to yourself, right? He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will save it. Um, I think often we're we're very ready to apply that kind of mindset to serving other humans in this life, right? Being willing to 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 do that, to make sacrifices, to serve the people around us. But we often forget that we're called to do that for God Himself. To be willing to give up things for God. To sacrifice for God. To put God before self. And for all of us, that's going to mean different things in life. It will present different challenges to each one of us. But make no mistake about it. All of us will have moments where God is calling us to set aside our wants, our needs, and put him first. And sometimes that may be in very small things. Sometimes that might mean something as relatively simple as kind of setting aside your pride um, in order to be a better witness for Jesus. Sometimes it might mean making bigger sacrifices. What's it going to look like for all of us? Um, you, know, you, you never know. You never know when God is going to call you into sacrificial service for him. Now Peter obviously learns his lesson. He will eventually go to his death for preaching the gospel. Which is significant. Here's a man who was willing to kill someone else so that they couldn't arrest Jesus. Who will end his life by being killed, letting himself be killed, letting himself be taken into custody and executed. For proclaiming the message of Jesus. Self-sacrificial. See, we're not going to have to do that. You and I aren't going to have to die for Jesus. Not, not that way, at least. But we are called to 
Place Jesus first and foremost in our lives, above anything and everything and everyone else. That's hard, my friends. It's hard, 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 hard. But Jesus did it for us. So as we come into Holy Week, I would, I would invite you to reflect on the incredible, overwhelming, all-encompassing love that Jesus has for you, specifically you, not us, not the community, but you as an individual. Reflect on how much God loves you, on how much God was willing to do for you and how much he is still doing for you. And then ask yourself what it is you can now do for him. That's all for this week, my friends. We'll be back next week with the podcast uh, on the Gospel of Mark and the Passion of Christ.